Firstly, the promises of God of land, offspring, and blessings are especially, well, continue to be worked out and fulfilled partially in one way or another. God is committed to keeping his promises on the first front, and that's deja vu. Secondly, we see the life of Abraham through its ebbs and flows and ups and downs. Again, deja vu, except these realities have been experienced before, although it seems like they're different circumstances. The first of those circumstances I want to draw to your attention is Abraham's deceit. Uh, it's not printed in your outlines, but back in Genesis chapter 20, we're just covering three chapters today, from chapter 20 to 22. Chapter 20, Abraham deceitfully passes off his wife, Sarah, as his sister. Doesn't that sound familiar? Again, there we go again. And Abimelech, who is the king of Jirah, innocently takes her to become his wife. This all happened 25 years earlier, in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham did the same thing with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember, back then, Sarah was a 65-year-old. She was a spring chicken back then. And now she's pushing 90 years old, but she's still apparently an ancient supermodel. <laughs> with the stress on the word ancient. Um, but here's the thing. Abraham again jeopardizes God's promises of a son through his line with Sarah, and therefore jeopardizes the world's hope of blessings. Right? Land offspring blessings, he jeopardizes the offspring and blessings thing again. But look at the mercy of God. We're going to look at some verses here. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sitting against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. You see what's going on? God is committed to his promises, and by his sovereign mercy, he saves Abraham, and he saves Abraham from his folly, and he saves Abimelech as well. Deja vu. And God is merciful despite Abraham's deceit. Yet this story is quite disturbing. I don't know if it's disturbing to you, but it is to me. Because it comes straight after, if you were here last week, it comes straight after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, comes straight after the incest of Lot with his daughters. And here we learn that the pagan king Abimelech of Jirah appears to fear God more than even Abraham. Despite what Abraham has gone through all this time, it feels like he's just started again. But God is committed to his own promises, no matter what Abraham is like. God is the provider. And so he continues to provide and keep his promise regarding a line with Isaac's birth. Chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah. Remember, if you read last week, you might recall that it's going to be one year uh, from the time that he promised Sarah that she would have her own child and he had the events of Sodom and Gomorrah in between and then it's one year now and the Lord visited Sarah as he has said 
And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Isaac. Here's the most visible fulfillment of God's promises so far. Here's a son and heir through Abraham and Sarah. Without this natural son, Abraham could never have had a multitude of nations or inherit the land or be a blessing to the nations. But now against all the odds, God continues to work in all things for the good of those who love him. Both Abraham and Sarah well, they originally laughed, remember? He said, I'm going to give you a son, but they originally laughed at the idea of having a child in their old age. In fact, you know what Isaac means? He laughs. That's what the word means. But now, Sarah laughs with joy. Have a look at the screen again. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now Sarah laughs in joy. I don't think this is a, a laughter that she thinks people will laugh at her for. It's more laughing with her. That is to say, she anticipates her joy to be universally shared. And because of that, Abraham throws a party. But at the party, there's a different kind of laughter. It's all this play on words with the word laugh. See, in the next section, we read, And the child grew and was weaned. This is Isaac. He grows, he's weaned. In other words, he's no longer breastfed. And Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. Big party. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. Now the son of Hagar was laughing, presumably in a mocking kind of tone, that Sarah was offended by. He, of course, is also Abraham's son. His name is Ishmael. Ishmael. And the Muslims claim that Ishmael is the one from whom they descended, although ultimately through Abraham and Ishmael. Remember, back in Genesis 16, Sarah had asked Abraham to sleep with Hagar, her slave woman, to conceive a son instead of trusting God's promise for Sarah to have her own son. Right? They trusted their own strength rather than in God's strength, in God's promises. Now here Ishmael is about 14 years old. He was Abraham's only child up till Isaac's birth. So it was predictable that Ishmael would resent Isaac's limelight. Yet what we have in Sarah's harsh words is actually a partial fulfillment of God's promises. If you were to go back to Genesis 12, you'll read that those who you bless will be blessed, but those who you curse will be cursed. And this, in part, is a curse, you see. By laughing mockingly at God's chosen line, Ishmael brings upon himself a curse of being exiled from Abraham's line. However, in mercy, 
God still extends Ishmael's line. Isaiah 21, verse 12 and following. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. You see the mercy of God? Deja vu. God mercifully keeps his promises against all the odds. Both sons will have nations coming from them. Both sons, Ishmael and Isaac, both sons. But it is through the light of Isaac that God will keep his promises to Abraham. Right? Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this is what makes the next part of the story so incredibly intriguing. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Literally. And that's what you've got in your outlines now. So have a look there in the first couple of verses of Genesis 22 in your outline. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Now it's not surprising to find Abraham not jeopardizing God's promises. But here it seems as if God himself is jeopardizing his own promises, doesn't it? That's that's different. That doesn't quite make sense. But what we learn here in verse 1 is that God is not testing Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham. Why does God test Abraham? Indeed, if you read the scriptures, you notice that God tests his people generally as well. Does God test his people? I wonder whether you might want to talk with the person next to you for about a minute or so. Why would God test his people? Let alone Abraham here. You've got a minute. For the person next to you. Why does God test people? Anyone else 
check they're genuine. To check that they're genuine? Yeah. Any other ways? Why do you have a If you look at, um, um, <coughs> sorry about that. Um, if you look towards um, towards the um, the end, um, the, the provision of, of the RAM um, in, in the place of Isaac, I think in, in many ways this is this is a way of God saying, "Hey, you have um, hey, you, um, as you have shown time and time and time again, you can't do um, this on your own. You will only stuff you will only stuff it up if you try to rely on your own strength. Therefore, I am vital to um, to." fulfillment of your promise. Yeah, yeah. So what exactly is God testing Abraham about? What's left there?
suffering is there through trial to pour down character by way of testing. See, God is not playing chess with us like the capricious gods of ancient Greece when it comes to testing. Now, he has our best interests at heart when he tests us, to mould us through trials to become like him. And this is a test for Abraham, to mould his character. Now, as the story continues, Abraham travels three days with Isaac and two servants. Imagine the scene. Abraham says to Isaac, we're going to have a big barbecue today for God. Yeah, just imagine that. Yeah, you and me. We're going to leave the servants behind. We're going to have a big barbecue with God. Isaac says, yeah, that's great. I've got, I've got the fire. I've got the wood. I've got the matches. Where's the meat? Pick it up. Verse 8. Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to, the slaughter, to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and, looked, and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. I wonder whether you think, like me, Abraham would have had second thoughts before God stopped him. You think he would have had second thoughts? I wonder whether he would have. Because I know me. But listen to the author of Hebrews. Again, the best commentary of the Bible is the Bible. What does the commentator of Hebrews say? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive a lamb. You see what the author of Hebrews is actually saying? Abraham actually trusted God against all the odds. He thought that even if he did kill Isaac, God would raise him back from the dead. Is that incredible? You think you have that kind of trust in the promises of God? We actually get a hint of this. You may have just passed by it like I always pass by it. But if you look at verse 5 in the outline, verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And, note, come again to you. He actually said it himself. He said, I'm going to return. And I don't think he was just being deceptive. He actually believed God. He took God at his word. 
and his word. But what was the word? That God would keep his promises regarding a line. And do note that the big idea that keeps coming through here is that God provided the sacrifice. God provided the sacrifice. He provided the sacrifice for Isaac, a ram caught in the thickets. And he ultimately provides a sacrifice for you and me, doesn't he? Are the New Testament bells starting to ring? <laughs> ding a ling a ling. A ling. I hope it's deafening now, right? It's just like a siren going off now. Who does Isaac foreshadow as the son of promise who dies a sacrificial death and is raised? Why, of course, it's Jesus, isn't it? But Jesus' death was not figurative. He died the real death, a real death that you and I deserve as a sacrifice instead of you and me. And he rose physically from the dead so that we could rise up with him and have new life. So sad then, isn't it, that when you look at so many of the other religions in the world, we see how we as a humanity in those religions have to provide sacrifices themselves to get right with the divine. A human sacrifices were made to a god or the gods all over the world in ancient times. The ancient Druids of Europe used to sacrifice their firstborn children. You can actually go to the altars and see, and they said blood would be spread out everywhere. You can go to the ancient Chinese used to sacrifice humans to river gods. Our religions in the rest of Asia and North and South America and Africa are archaeologically littered with altars clearly used for human sacrifice. And then there are suicide bombers who sacrifice themselves in order to get a better afterlife. And within some Christian denominations, there are many who think that communion, the eating of the bread and drinking the wine, is an actual sacrifice. They think that it actually is Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. And so when they eat it, they actually think it's, it's Jesus. But then in the end, it, it's, it's not. Please know it's not. When Jesus said, this is my body, it, it, his body was giving his body as a clue. It, it's just a reminder. It's, it's a photograph. It's a symbol. Are you telling me it's just a photograph? No, it's, it's an important kind of symbol. Now, if I were to take a photograph here of my beautiful family, and I say, here is my family, my dear wife, and so here's my beautiful photo, and then I rip up the photo in front of you. How would you feel about that? It's only a photo. But it's, it's more than that, you see? The same with the bread and the wine. It, it's, it's not actually Jesus' body and blood, but there is a symbolic significance that is attached to it. But it's not a sacrifice. Please it's not a sacrifice. Because Jesus has made the one for all sufficient sacrifice. Now, that's all in the world of religion, so to speak. But of course, in the West today, we sacrifice in other ways, don't we? Workers sacrifice their lives for their employer in order to get a better lifestyle. 
workaholism is right for the sake of more material and lifestyle gain. And sadly, in our world today, we sacrifice babies through termination because it's inconvenient to our lifestyle. And if you are in one of these situations, perhaps filled with shame, guilt, deep down inside, please remember again that God provided the sacrifice in giving His one and only Son to forgive you of your sins. There is no unforgivable sin apart from rejecting Jesus to your last All you need to do is to ask God for forgiveness. Don't suppress your guilt. Confess it to God and He will forgive you. He sent His one and only Son as a sacrifice for you. And all you need to do is to turn back to Him. The big idea from these chapters, in chapters 20 to 22, is that despite Abraham jeopardizing God's promise of a son in his life, and the apparent actions of God to jeopardize his own promise of a son, well, they were never jeopardized because God was committed to his own promise. And God gave his one and only son so that we too, we too, could become sons. Final verse for today, Galatians chapter 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the Lord, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Oh, dear friends, because of Jesus, we too can be his offspring. We too can be his children. We too can be his sons. Yes, sons. Dear sisters, please, please, don't ever let that bother you. You too are sons of God to believe me. Just as much as I'm part of the bride you are sons. What's a son do? Well, a son stands to inherit. Inherit everything as co-heirs with Jesus of the heaven to come. But here is the big idea that like Jesus, we can know God. We can roll that word around in our mouth, Abba, Father. We can know him as Father, as no other person in this world, no matter what religion they come from. They can't know God as Father like we know God as God. And you might, like me, however, find that, well, strange in some sense, but for some of us you might identify with it. Many of us, I take it. I wonder whether, like me, you have a kind and generous father. God gave sandals to his people. My father used to give me joggers every year until I was 35. <laughs> every year he would give me a set of you know, K226s. And you know what they are? They were so cool in it. <laughs> But it may be that you might say, I've never known what it is to have a father because he passed away or 
in a time when I was very young. Or even sadder, it may be that you might say, I had a very disappointing father, even a wicked father. And if this is true of you, I really am sorry. I really am. It's it's awful. And I've spoken to one or two of you who have explained this to me. I just can't imagine what that's like because it's not my experience. My father's not a Christian. He is very hard to be nevertheless by God's grace. But I am glad that you are here today to learn that God is truly our Father. And what God is really, really like. To learn what it means to be His son, to be a part of His family. Because as we end today, I just hope that what is deja vu, deja vu for you, day in, day out, is the recognition of your sonship. Or to put it another way, J.R. Packer wrote this in his book called Knowing God. I can't remember the page number, but I wish I had it for you. You know, book says, remember each day that God is my Father, Heaven is my home, Jesus is my older brother, and every Christian is my brother and sister too. Isn't that amazing? That's your identity in Christ. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, God is my Father, Heaven is my home, Jesus is my older brother, and every Christian is my brother and sister. Just keep saying that to yourself every day. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what background you have. As you're shaving, as you're putting on your lipping, doing whatever it is, just look at the mirror and not think, oh, I'm a sinner, or gee, I've got an assignment to you, or gee, this is... No, God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Jesus is my older brother. And every Christian is my brother and sister too. Because God kept his promises to Abraham. Shall we pray? We thank you, dear Father, for your kindness to us in keeping your promises to Abraham that will fulfill supremely in sending your son Jesus. We pray that we might firstly come before you and <coughs> fess up if we need to and turn to you in repentance and faith. And from that point on, live as your sons, knowing you as our Father, into eternity for Jesus' sake.